You're listening to the Redeeming Grace Church podcast. For more information about our church, go to rgcrc.org. Chapter 63. O God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you, as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory, because your steadfast love is better than life. My lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. In your name I will lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food, and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips. When I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night, for you have been my help, and in the shadow of your wings I will sing for joy. My soul clings to you, your right hand upholds me. But those who seek to destroy my life shall go down into the depths of the earth. They shall be given over to the power of the sword. They shall be a portion for jackals. But the king shall rejoice in God, All who swear by him shall exult, for the mouths of liars will be stopped. Good morning, Redeeming Grace Church. Um, I believe that children, um, third grade and younger, can be dismissed upstairs. Um, And so, as we get started here, um, please join me in a word of prayer. Uh, You may be seated as well. (laughs) Don't want to forget that. Thank you. Our Heavenly Father, I pray that you will be with us today as we hear your word. Pray that your Holy Spirit would be with me, guard me from error, and open our hearts to receive your word. Be with us, Lord, and draw us to yourself. And I pray that this sermon would um, awaken our longings Um, and direct them to you. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Um, So my name is Joseph Updike. Um, This is my first time preaching today. Um, So if you don't like the sermon, (laughs) um, don't don't hold it against our church. Uh, We would love for you to come back afterwards. So (laughs) Um, turn with me in your Bibles to Psalm 63. Um, If you have um, a Bible next to you or in the seat, next to you. I would love for for you to get it on paper or on your phone. Um, It's just not quite the the same um, up on the screen, um, and it's so much better when when you have the ability to kind of see it all um, just directly in front of you you there. So in this psalm, um, David is longing for God. We will see themes of longing for God, especially through the analogy of hungering for him as food strengthens our flesh and thirsting for him within our souls. This longing points to God's past promises fulfilled, which then allows David to rest in the confidence of God's future providence. David meditates on this throughout the psalm, and there are some really beautiful parallels in the New Testament as well, which we'll take a closer look at. But ultimately, this psalm is a deep crying out and longing for God's nearness, his steadfast love, and fellowship that ultimately leads to joyful praise from the one who is receiving these things. In verse one, David cries out saying, "O God, my soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. In one sense, we get the meaning of hunger and thirst 
as someone being hungry for food and wanting water. Your body is giving you a certain discomfort to tell you that it needs something. But how does this translate to the soul? How, how might our heart and soul long for something? On the flip side, how can it be satisfied? These are the main questions that we'll be looking over in the sermon today. Specifically, what does it mean for our soul to thirst for God and our flesh to faint for God? How might we cultivate this longing in our daily lives? And finally, what gives us true satisfaction? Let's begin by taking a look at the point of the story in David's life and asking how David found himself in this place of desperate longing for God. The title of the psalm says, a psalm of David when he was in the wilderness of Judah. One other passage that um, closely relates to this is in 1 Samuel 20, um, 23. You, you don't have to turn there. Um, I'll, I'll just give you a, a brief synopsis of the passage. Um, but David finds himself being pursued by King Saul in the wilderness of Judah. Um, at this point in David's story, he has already slain Goliath. He has already proven himself to be a great warrior and a brilliant general against the armies of the Philistines. He has also been appointed by the prophet Samuel as God's uh, choice of king over Israel, even though King Saul is technically still in power. The story in 1 Samuel 23 goes that Saul is pursuing him in the wilderness, and Jonathan, David's dear friend and King Saul's son, comes to meet David. He encourages him, he reassures him, and makes a covenant with him before God. However, Saul soon hears of David's location, and David again decides to flee into the wilderness. This scenario has been repeated in David's life a number of times by now, and it keeps recurring for about 10 years of David's life until the death of King Saul. But we can see in this passage that David's circumstances look pretty bleak. The only thing he can do is stay alive and trust that God is going to take care of him. In this moment where we meet David, we see a present desperation for God and a deep frustration for the injustice um, that he is facing from King Saul. David is not only seeing his loyalty be rewarded with Saul's repeated attempts to murder him, but he is also deeply hurt by Saul's rebellion against God, as we will see in a moment. It is out of this place, this level of injustice, this depth of uncertainty, of being stretched to the limits of his trust in God in the wilderness, that David is crying out, O oh God, you are my God. Earnestly, I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you, as in a dry and weary land where there is no drink. This, just, this should set the tone of the psalm for us. David is not in a place of comfort, but instead of lashing out and complaining about his circumstances, it causes David to realize that even more than being removed from his situation, um, I lost my place here, um, even more than being removed from his situation, even more than being at peace with the king, David desires and longs for God above anything else, even on a more intense level as a result of his circumstances. Let's read through the psalm one more time just to get a pic bigger picture of David, David's mindset here. O oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. 
So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. Because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. In your name I will lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food, and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips when I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night. For you have been my help, and in the shadow of your wings I will sing for joy. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. But those who seek to destroy my life shall go down into the depths of the earth. They shall be given over to the power of the sword. They shall be a portion for jackals. But the king shall rejoice in God. All who swear by him shall exult, for the mouths of liars will be stopped. One thing to point out, this psalm carries with it a threefold structure that repeats, that repeats itself twice. In verses 1 through 4, we see this pattern of longing, followed by a memory of beholding God's power and glory, which leads to rest and praise. In verses 5 through 11, this pattern repeats again as longing with a promise of being satisfied, beholding God's power through God's justice, which also leads to resting in God's love and praising him as a result. To reiterate, we have longing, then beholding God's power, which results in rest and praise. In writing in this pattern, David gives, gives us a sense of preaching to himself and giving a voice to his sorrow and turmoil, turning it into something good and glorifying to God. Let's take a look at each, uh, a closer look at each verse. Verse one, O God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you, as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. David makes it clear that he is longing for God himself. It's the thing he desires most as the answer to a thirsty and empty soul and weary flesh. The lesson we see from this example is the treatment of our longings today, which is why I'm spending so much time on verse 1. Often we aren't even aware that we're longing for something because the need is met so quickly. We don't have to enter into this kind of longing for God because we have all of our needs met within arm's reach. We do the same thing for our souls, too. If we have a longing, immediately we grab any number of dopamine boosters to give us that sense of momentary fulfillment. Social media, Facebook, YouTube, these are all habits that I have, um, that, that I'm sure many others here have, that are just cheese puffs and Doritos for the soul. We can sit there for so long taking bite, after bite, after bite, until we just feel terrible. But this degree of longing that David is experiencing is far above that typical longing that we feel today. Consider this. Have you ever wanted something so much that its absence, absence made you feel physically weak? The way that David is speaking about his longing is as if the sense of isolation and distance from God is making his body faint with exhaustion. He's feeling physically weak with a desire to be close to God, to be in communion with God. This idea ought to portray the sense that closeness with God is not only physically sustaining in some ways, 
but that is it, it is intensely desirable. That it's desirable above anything else to long for God and to want what he alone can offer. As David is feeling this weighty longing for God, he reveals it is brought in part by his memories of worshiping in the sanctuary. Look at verse 2 with me. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. Two things to point out between verses 1 and 2. First, in verse 2, when David says, I have, past tense, looked upon God in the sanctuary, he's reflecting upon the memory of corporate worship and seeing the power of God's presence, likely in the Ark of the Covenant. One commentator puts it this way, the psalmist's yearning for God is heightened by his past experience of fellowship, of God's glorious presence and the evidences of his covenantal love. In other words, this memory that David has of God's power and glory in the sanctuary is adding to his current longing for God. Earnestly, I seek you, um, going back to verse 1, notice it's in the present tense, leads to, so I have looked upon you in the sanctuary. I have beheld your power and glory. David is longing for God based on the memory of an experience with him in the sanctuary. Since David has been pursued in the wilderness for a number of years now, it's likely that he's being prevented from joining the corporate worship in various sanctuaries. In the midst of his current trials, he is not able to worship and pray in the tabernacle with his fellow believers. Can you imagine going through your trials today without having your brothers and sisters in Christ there to pray with you and to comfort you? But this should also cause us to think In your life right now, do you have a memory of God's work in your life? Has there ever been a time in corporate worship or in a sermon where you were were emotionally moved by the picture of God's love? Or is there a time when God answered your prayers? Is there a time when you felt such a strong degree of affection for God that the memory can sustain you in your current trials? Or maybe it's even looking back over your life and seeing how much you've changed as a result of the work of the Holy Spirit. I think if David could speak to you right now, in whatever trial you are experiencing, he would encourage you to lean into that memory of God's past faithfulness as a comfort for your present circumstances. I want to be clear that this is not just a lofty example of David as this super spiritual person Um, who has amazing experience with, with God that we can't access. Rather, this is an example of the kind of relationship that God desires to have with you. Worshiping God is displayed here as this beautiful experience that gives us sustaining joy, even in the midst of our darkest um, moments in life. The memory of God's power and glory and joy that comes from that sustains us into the future. This is shown by the transition in verses 3 and 4, where it says, Because your steadfast love is, notice the present tense, better than life, my lips will, future tense, praise you. So I will, again, future tense, bless you as long as I live. In your name, I will lift up my hands. Any day now. 
the acknowledgement of his current state, the memory of past worship, and beholding God's power and glory and the past are sustaining him into the future. David is saying, I'm currently in a state of great neediness before you, God. I see how much I need you and the memory of your power and glory, of singing your praise in the sanctuary, of being with my fellow believers, of even your past faithfulness and steadfast love that you have shown me. This is leading me to praise you now and into the future. My lips will praise you because through all of this, your steadfast love is constantly better than life. I will lift up my, name, my hands in your name because I long for you in the deepest parts of my soul. This is what David is saying th throughout, um, th throughout this psalm. Notice also that while David is saying that God's love is better than life, he also contrasts it with his own life when he says, I will bless you as long as I live. David is saying, in a sense, that God's love is better than even my life because it goes beyond my life. I will one day die, but your love will continue, and so I will use what time I have left to bless you. In a similar fashion, as we meditate on psalms like this, we begin training our hearts for hardship. That instead of turning to something like anger or lashing out against the injustice of our situation, we, we turn to something, um, we, we turn to acknowledge our needy state before God. Instead of turning to bitterness and despair at a hardship we have experienced or a hard trial we're currently going through, we remember God's faithfulness, the sweetness of worship, the sustaining love that comes from God, and knowing that even those moments, it is good to praise him. Because his love is better than life, because his love is better than my life, I will praise him. Remember the structure that we talked about a few moments ago? Over the next half of the psalm, we see the same pattern being repeated. It starts with longing, followed by meditating on God's power and glory, most notably how it's revealed in his justice and judgment that leads us into praise. Verse five begins with a delight in the satisfying nature of God's love. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food, and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips. Instead of thirsting and hungering, we see that, J that David is resting on the promises of future satisfaction. In answer to his hungering and thirsting for God, he rests in his trust that God will fill him as with rich and delightful food. This satisfaction is hinted at again in verse 3 when, when David says, Because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. In verse 5, he's carrying along that same thought to say that your steadfast love is satisfying to my soul um, as fat and rich food is satisfying to my body. And again, I will joyfully praise you because of this. Even though David's needs in life are not being met because of his circumstances, he still commits to praising God. He is saying that God is better than anything that can satisfy his circumstances. David continues in verse 6, my mouth will praise you when I remember you upon my bed, when I meditate on you in the watches of the night. 
This may likely refer to times when David is camping out in the wilderness and there are watchers there to protect the camp who have to stay awake in order to alert those who are sleeping in case there's an attack from the enemy. Meditating on the Lord and his steadfast love is something that might sustain him during these long hours of watchfulness. For us today, the watches of the night might mean something like the sleepless nights we endure at times, when we can't get our minds to be at peace or get them to turn off as we keep thinking about the many what-ifs that the future holds or some sadness that we've experienced. How sweet a comfort it would be if instead of continuing down these same scripts within our minds, that instead we thought of God's past faithfulness, his past satisfaction, to rest in the trustworthiness of his promises. Remember when I was asking about whether you've had a memory of God's faithfulness in your life? That's the thing David is also turning to when he isn't able to get any sleep. David here shows that when he meditates on God and his faithfulness in the night hours, it also leads to praise. Verse 7, For you have been my help, and in the shadow of your wings I will sing for joy. This image of shadow of your wings is used in so many places throughout the scriptures. It conveys the idea of little chicks gathering under the mother hen for protection. Jesus himself uses this image explicitly when he is mourning over the future destruction of Jerusalem in Matthew 23. He says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how often I would have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, but you were not willing. Every time this image is used throughout scripture, it is to describe this place of safety and rest where one can dwell without fear. In addition, it also has this aspect of fellowship as well. We fellowship with God while dwelling in the shadow of his wings, while meditating on him in the watches of the night, while being satisfied by him, and while longing for him and relying on him to uphold us. And what's more, this allows us to sing for joy. Because of all of this, in verse 8, David says, My soul clings to you, and your right hand upholds me. In biblical times, there's great significance to the symbol of the right hand or hands in general. Sometimes it conveys this idea of a person's entire might uh, within their being, being represented by their right hand. Um, In 1 Kings 8.15, the hand of God represents the actual fulfillment of promises made by words. um, 1 Kings 8.15 says this, And he said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who with his hand has fulfilled what he promised with his mouth to David my father. Those were the words of King Solomon when the Ark of the Covenant was brought to the temple that that he built. So this idea of your right hand upholding me conveys a sense of actual promises fulfilled. God's hand in that sense is the thing that holds my confidence and my basis for safety. David is saying, because you have fulfilled promises to me, my soul clings to you and in your ability to fulfill what you have spoken. This is my assurance. This is my trust. This is my confidence throughout life that God will fulfill his promises. Verse 9, we see a change to focus on the justice of God. 
we see a pretty stark contrast between this abounding joy as the reward for those who long for God and for those who are in rebellion against him. Let's read verses 9 and 10. But those who seek to destroy my life shall go down into the depths of the earth. They shall be given over to the power of the sword. They shall be a portion for jackals. Here we are coming out of the idea of rest in the shadow of God's wings to this idea that the God who fulfills promises and keeps his word will also subdue the enemies. God, as the vindicator of the righteous, the defender of David, the satisfier of souls, the joy giver, is also a divine warrior who will destroy the unrighteous. He shall bring them down to the depths of the earth, which is a metaphor for hell. In verse 10, where it says they, they shall be given over to the power of the sword, they shall be a portion for jackals. This conveys an image of a battlefield strewn with fallen warriors, where jackals, who are sort of like a, a Middle Eastern coyote in a sense, are scavenging the remains. It conveys this sense of carnage and desecration over David's enemies. God will cause the enemies to be defeated. This is an appeal to God's justice. In David's experience, those who seek to destroy my life would be those who have sided with King Saul over King David, even though King David was God's anointed. David is essentially speaking of those who are rebelling against God's will for the kingdom of Israel. And since David, not Saul, is God's chosen. We should not read this in a personalized way that the people we don't like, that God will put them down and slay them in battle. Rather, the ordinary believer should read this as a description of people who are hostile to God's purposes, and especially those who are hostile to the house of David. But who, who might we think this also might apply to? Who else is a member of the house of David? Jesus himself. Jesus is the son of David. Jesus is the king who is God's anointed over his church. Those who seek to destroy Jesus and all he has done will go down into the depths of the earth and they will fail in their goal of destroying Christ. Verse 11 also adds to this context. But the king shall rejoice in God and all who swear by him shall exult for the mouths of liars will be stopped. In contrast to those who seek to destroy David, God's faithful will be able to rejoice. Here we see that these promises are not just linked to David or even just the house of David, but to, but to all who swear by the king that God has appointed. This phrase in verse 11, all who swear by him, indicates this picture of swearing fealty and loyalty to the king. This rejoicing and exulting is in response to God silencing the mouths of liars and bringing forth his justice against the enemies of the king. For us today, we have this wonderful opportunity to look back across church history and see how God has sustained his church. The church has always been persecuted. There's never been a time in history where, where some form of per persecution has not happened to the church. They, there have always been the enemies of God trying to corrupt and ruin what God has done. But we can rest in the promises of God, just as David did, where Jesus the King promises in John 10, 28, I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. What a joy this brings, 
that as God upholds us with his right hand, we also have the promise that no one is able to snatch us away from him. So calling back to the original structure of the psalm, we have two sections that um, each echo each other. Verses 1 through 4 begins with a longing for God as a soul thirsts for water in a desert. David remembers the times of worship and seeing majestic visions of God's power and glory and rests in the fact that God's covenantal steadfast love is better than life and will praise him as a result. The second section begins with the confidence of future satisfaction for his longing. Verse 5, my soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food, and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips. David puts forward remembrance and meditation in the night hours on the ways that God has helped him, and this gives him rest. He calls to mind the image of a God covering his children with his wings and dwelling in the safety and fellowship of this place. He ends with a vision of the justice of God, and if as if the enemies of God were defeated on a battlefield and their bodies were being picked apart by scavengers. This is ultimately a metaphor for hell, being taken down into the depths of the earth as a result of their rebellion against God. This finally leads God's anointed and God's people to rejoice. Over and over throughout this psalm, we see this pattern of longing followed by satisfaction in God specifically in his power and glory and justice. This then leads the one receiving these things to joyful songs of praise. It teaches us that God will satisfy our deepest longings in such a way that brings us ultimate joy. This psalm displays God as fulfilling his promises and being a sure and steady place for our confidence as we continue in fellowship with him. So how can we apply this today? At the beginning, we talked about a few questions that this psalm answered. Number one, what does it mean for our soul to thirst for God? Second, how might we cultivate this longing in our daily lives? And three, what gives us true satisfaction? Let's start with the first one. What, what does it mean for our soul to thirst for and our flesh to faint for God? There may be no better speaker regarding this idea of longing than C.S. Lewis. In his book, Mere Christianity, he says this, If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. Lewis is saying that each of us has a longing that ultimately has no satisfaction in this world. In other places, he describes this longing as a sickness that is better than any cure, and a desire that by itself is more desirable than any satisfaction. In David's experience, he had a deep relationship with God. From this psalm alone, we know that this relationship affected his entire being, in his soul, when he says that his soul thirsts for God and clings to God, it affected his flesh, the strength of his body, in a similar way that food deprivation would. But even more than that, David's relationship affected his heart, his emotional experience. It was the first of his longings, the greatest of his loves, and the entire basis for David's sense of confidence in life. But David didn't get to this level and say, I'm good, that's all I need. He continued pursuing God earnestly, 
as something that is unattainable on earth, but is far more desirable than anything else this world can provide. I pray for everyone in this room that we have experienced something like this, or soon will. One of the sweetest droplets of joy that a person can find is in the first time the gospel message moved you. You may have felt it at a baptism, in the Lord's Supper, or in a gospel song, or a time in prayer, or reading the scriptures. Consider this. How did you feel the moment it clicked in your mind that God loves you? How did you respond in your heart and soul when you realized that Jesus died for you? That he covered the cost of your sin and washed away your guilt? That he forgives you? How did that make you feel? This feeling is one of the most beautiful glimmers of satisfaction that we will experience in life. Desiring a closeness with our Redeemer as a result, knowing that one day this longing will be fully revealed and, and fully satisfied in heaven. That, that is what it means to thirst for God. If you haven't experienced this, I truly want you to know that you can. Jesus calls out to you that if you repent and believe in him, he can show you what this immeasurable joy in him can look like. If you want to know more about this, please give me or the elders or really anyone here the chance to share Jesus with you more after the sermon. Question two, how might we cultivate this longing in our daily lives? If you know Christ, the best way is through pursuing friendship with God. John Owen said that we communion with the Father in his love, the Son in his grace, and the Holy Spirit in his comfort. By receiving these things from God in our relationship with him, we experience his friendship. Spending time in prayer, spending time in the word, spending time learning about God, being with other believers and seeing this as fellowship with God will make you desire more fellowship with him. As with any friend, the sweetness of their presence makes you long to continue that presence. James 4.8 says this, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. David, David in this psalm was intentionally drawing near to God and calling out to him to come and satisfy the longings of his heart and soul. If we ever feel that God is distant or if we are missing greater intimacy with him, we can pray like David did. We can pray through the psalms and ask for more of God's love more of his grace, and more of his comfort. Another way we can cultivate this longing is to meditate on and memorize scripture. David provides the example of, of this to us when he describes the times he is laying awake at night. He thinks on God's promises and his past faithfulness. When your brain won't turn off, it is such a wonderful thing to think about how God has been faithful to you and how he teaches us that in scripture. A memorized psalm does something similar in providing this sweetness to our soul when our minds trouble us. Having something like Psalm 63 memorized in the back of your mind is not only a comfort, but just a very practical way to prepare for hardship and sleepless nights. Finally, 
Another way we can cultivate longing is through fasting. In Psalm 63, David is in a state of hunger and thirst, and it reminds him of his need for God. In this way, taking away things like food for a time can lead to greater longing for God. If we skip a meal or two, do a bread and water fast for a day, cut out certain foods or drinks that we depend on so much, like coffee. Is anyone up for that? (laughs) Um, When you notice yourself feeling tired or hungry, pray. When it comes to how we nourish our souls, we can look to our media and internet consumption as well. These are a good place to start cutting away. For social media, take a social media fast for a week or two or get rid of it altogether. Train your heart to believe that you don't need Facebook. You don't need these things as much as you need Christ. Finally, our last question of today, what gives us true satisfaction? The culmination of everything we've talked about today is in this. John chapter 6 in verse 35, shortly after feeding the 5,000, Jesus says this, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. Shortly afterwards, he says in verse 55, for my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. When David says, O God, you are my God, earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. How would David respond to the Lord's Supper? As a poignant example of this desire for Christ, I think of some of the last words of Tim Keller who passed away a few weeks ago. He said, I'm thankful for all the people who've prayed for me over the years. I'm thankful for my family that loves me. I'm thankful for the time that God has given me, but I'm ready to see Jesus. I can't wait to see Jesus send me home. One day we will feast with Christ, but not yet. Until then, may we long for God in our earthly feast of the Lamb, as a promise of one day being so joyfully and wonderfully satisfied in him when we finally see Jesus himself and experience that joy in heaven. Let's pray. Oh God, you are my God. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. May you satisfy all our longings as we seek you earnestly. May you give us more of yourself that our joy may be complete. We love you, Jesus. We long for you. May you draw near to us. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Thank you. And I believe now we'll turn it over to the elders to lead us through the Lord's Supper. Thank you for listening to the Redeeming Grace Church podcast. For more information about our church, go to rgcrc.org.